Hi everybody, you're very welcome to tonight's or today's welcome to the Big Book Study where we will have two guest speakers. We will have Nancy J and Larry Kay. My name is Audrey Ann and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland and I will be your host today. We also have Maria F and Sue L and John B as coast. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact myself or any of the other co-hosts through private message in the chat function. Please note that the speakers will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer sessions will not be recorded. We will post the link for the previous week's recording in the chat function. We ask if you please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study, today's speaker, sorry. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising or eating, or if you need to step away from your screen. I will now hand you over to the lovely Nancy J. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you. And Maria Anne Marie Kay needs to be a co-host because she's going to show some pictures. Brilliant. So Anne Marie Kay, if you see her. What was the other name, Nancy? Right here. I'm here. Anne Marie Kay. Okay, got you there. So if you stay there, if you can just keep your microphone on there, we can do it from here. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Was there another person, Nancy? Uh, no, I think she's the only one that, that I personally, uh, who's going to help me. Now, Dawn B is going to do the uh, question and answers when Larry is done. Then we'll have a question and answer period. I'm still not made a co-host, though, to do that. We'll just do it so you know. Yeah. Okay, just checking. Thank nope. you. We're okay. And Maria, we're recording. I think we're all set. All set, Nancy. Away you we're go. all set. And, and today is Saturday, February uh, 18th, 2023. And Harlan is visiting in the Chicago area. So he is in here today. And so for people who uh, just came on, I'm gonna be speaking for about a half an hour about my recovery. Then Larry Kay is gonna speak for half an hour on his recovery. And then we're gonna ask for questions and answers. And then there'll be a parking lot after that. So we hope you can join us for all of that. Now I'm gonna start in on my, my story. And uh, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my life. I'm 77 years old right now. I was born May 24th, 1945 into a Jewish family in New York. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And um, I'm getting it. And Anne Marie, there's a picture there that has nothing to do with me. I know I'm trying. That's your okay, parents. okay, okay. Ignore the picture in the background. This is a picture of my parents. Anne Marie is kind enough to help show some of my pictures, and you can see my parents were lovely people. Who maybe you saw them? Uh, Sorry you're having about that. Some technical, okay, here we go. Wonderful, thank you, Anne-Marie. My mother was just a lovely woman, beautiful woman. 
uh, and her name was Jeanette. And my father, Herbert, was a great father. So I was very lucky, uh, the family that I was born into. Uh, both of their parents came from Europe, Jews from Europe, uh, escaping uh, the Russians. Uh, the, the parents uh, were from a part of Europe. It was little villages like in Fiddler on the Roof, those kind of villages. and. So both in both cases, their parents came to New York and my parents met uh, and married and we moved out to Long Island to Freeport, which is an hour outside of New York City. My father was a lawyer and I'm a, I'm a lawyer. And uh, we just had a very happy home life. We had a wonderful family. Relatives would come and visit us. Uh, we sit in the backyard or sit in our house and we would, there was no praying or anything like that, but we belonged to a Jewish temple, but it was more of a cult, being a cultural Jew, feeling, feeling a, a part of the Jewish community, but we didn't actually pray. Nobody asked for God to intervene in their lives. And um, I was, I was a very happy little girl, very outgoing and sociable. And, um, but I myself was never heavy. And Anne Marie, can you show the picture? Would you be able to show the picture of me with my mother and my brother? Okay, there's my beautiful mother. You can see she has a tiny waist. She always had a beautiful figure and my brother. And then that's me in my mother's arms. And you can see I was just a normal weight little girl. I was a normal weight teenager. And I never really thought about my weight or food. Uh, it was just a non-issue. And uh, unfortunately, when I was nine years old, my mother died of breast cancer. And it was back in uh, 1954. And for some reason, there was some stigma or shame attached to cancer. And I don't think that exists as much today. There may be a little bit of that where people don't want to talk about having cancer, but I don't think there's an actual stigma or shame anymore. But back in 1954, I think there might've been, and my mother, I'm sure didn't want to scare me. I, I never had the opportunity to ask her because she on her own decided to hide the cancer. And she told me she had a back issue and went in and out of the hospital with a back issue. So I never worried. I just thought my mother had a, a bad back. And then finally, one day, my father sent me to my aunt's house. And when I came home, I everybody was crying, all kinds of relatives were crying. And I was told my mother had been buried that day. I wasn't even at the funeral. I didn't know that she was ill. And so that of course is traumatic. And one of the many things that I've had to work on in my OA resentment uh, work is to understand that my mother loved me. She was a wonderful mother. 
And she would never have done anything to me to hurt me. And she probably thought she was protecting me. I've even realized lately, she may not have even known how ill she was. She may not have known she was dying when she died. She may not have known it was gonna be that soon. But my brother's bar mitzvah was in 1954. He, my mother willed herself to live for his bar mitzvah. We have beautiful pictures of my mother dancing with my father. And just a few weeks after that, she died. So she somehow willed, she wanted to be alive for his bar mitzvah. But again, I had no idea that she was a sick woman in that way. And then my father remarried and he remarried. And my stepmother was a very cruel and cold and difficult woman. I had tough teenage years living with this woman. And then she died of cancer. She had her foot amputated and her leg amputated and died when I was a senior in high school. So I had, of course, more trauma. And the greatest trauma may have come from how cruel and difficult my stepmother was. That may have been harder than anything. It affected my self-esteem very deeply. And uh, so then I went on to college and uh, and then all of a sudden after college, uh, I started to worry about just a few pounds and I went to Weight Watchers and I enjoyed Weight Watchers. I, I love the camaraderie and the, I loved listening to the speakers, but uh, then I got married and had children. And that's when I began. Here's a picture. Anne-Marie is kind enough to put that up here. You'll see, I wasn't that overweight as a bride. I may have thought I could lose five pounds, but the weight was still not a major issue. But then, and now Anne-Marie, I'd like you to show the composite picture, the before and after picture to show you, I got to be where my weight was over a hundred pound issue. And, and I yo-yoed throughout my whole adult life, gaining, and the top row is me at 272 pounds. The bottom row is me today at 167. And you can see in the bottom row that Anne-Marie is showing, there's my husband, Walter, who I've been married to for 54 years. And I've been very fortunate to be married to such a wonderful, loving man, a very good man who accepted me no matter what my weight was. And uh, he, he tells a little joke that being married to me was like being married to 10 different women because I look so different at different times in our 54 years of marriage. I've been every size and shape. And I tried, and Anne-Marie, you can take that one down. Uh, I tried very hard uh, with different diets and I'm a very good dieter. I'm an excellent dieter. If you give me a diet plan, I will follow it. And I will be very faithful to it and I will lose the weight. I don't care what the plan is, I'll stick to it, whether it's Jenny Craig or Optifast or Weight Watchers or anything you can think of. Uh, I'm very faithful to the plan. I've always been a good student and love school, and I would study the diets and I'd follow them 
But once I lost the weight, got down to my goal weight, what do you think happened? I bet I can, I bet every one of you would get 100% with that question. I put the weight back on. Something was wrong up in my brain, like Dr. Silkworth explains in uh, the doctor's opinion. There's something up in my brain as as faithful a dieter as I am and as good a student as I am and as well-intentioned as I am, something up in my brain just doesn't accept it. And once I get down to my goal weight, little thoughts creep in like, Nancy, you've done so well, you could have an ice cream sandwich, it's a hot day. Or Nancy, you could have pistachio nuts. they're healthy, it won't hurt you. You can have a few. And before I knew it, my whole food plan fell apart. And I was talking myself into eating this and that. And then I'd say, well, get it out of your system and eat some more, you'll start tomorrow. And I did this again and again and again, putting the 100 plus pounds back on. And meanwhile, I'm in law school, And the stress of being an attorney uh, was pretty severe. I was basically a corporate lawyer in a a male-dominated environment, and I worked very hard. I was one of those people that was there late at night and early in the morning. And uh, I remember one day in particular, uh, I felt tremendous stress, and I had in my desk drawer, all kinds of candy bars and granola bars and snacks. And that's how I would get through the day. And uh, so finally in April of 2015, I came back to OA. I had started with OA many years before, but then I left it to go to law school. So now I'm back in April 2nd of 2015 at 272 pounds. And I am at this point in very serious condition. When I go to work, my nose starts to bleed and the bright red blood would fall on the papers on the desk. And there I am sitting in a black suit, 272 pounds, trying to look professional and blood is dripping all over my my papers on my desk. I'm too scared to go to the doctor. I have high blood pressure. I'm sure I was a good candidate for a stroke, but I was too scared to go to the doctor. But then I finally went to OA. And I remembered sitting there that night on April 2nd, 2015, very depressed with a black raincoat, like a size 26 or 28 black raincoat, I never said a word in that meeting, but I heard these words at the end of the meeting, welcome home, welcome home. The tears just went down my cheeks. I was uh, so emotional at hearing those words. And for any of you who are listening to me, let me say that to you with all my heart, welcome home. And so I joined OA Again, I got a sponsor. We went through the steps. I was very faithful. I was a faithful student, as I always am, followed my diet beautifully, lost over 100 pounds. 
do you think that I relapsed that time? And the answer is, thank God, no. That's the miracle that I'm telling you about today. I'm telling you that I have not relapsed since I came into OA April 2nd of 2015. It's been a miracle because now when that voice in my head says, Nancy, go ahead, you can have an ice cream. My husband and I are, are sailboaters and we, have a, we go away for the weekends on our sailboat up in Wisconsin. We hang around with a lot of normal people as far as food is concerned and they're all eating ice cream. We walk, we walk for a mile from our boat to an ice cream store and everybody's getting ice cream. I'm the only one who isn't getting ice cream. And maybe some of these people are even a little heavier than me at this point. I might say that the voice may go off in my head, Nancy, you can have an ice cream. It's hot. You walk for a mile. And then this voice, the recovered voice comes into my head and says, it's poison for you. You don't need that. Don't hurt yourself. It's poison for you. And you know what the miracle is? I listened to that voice. The voice that I never listened to before. I never had an answer before. If it told me to eat before, after I lost the hundred pounds, I would eat. Now I don't do it. Now I see it that for what it is, it's a killer. Certain foods for me are a killer. And I'm now, because of going through the steps, having a higher power, and sponsoring people and going to meetings and listening to podcasts and hanging on every word in that big book, the same voices in my head, now I'm able to listen to them. And uh, I wanna read to you a beautiful section of the big book. I think of this big book, for those of you who are anywhere near my age, you may remember there was a toy, a child's toy, years ago called a crazy eight ball. Do any of you remember that? And you shake it and it gives you an answer. You ask, it's like, almost like a, a fortune cookie in a Chinese restaurant. You ask the crazy eight ball a question, like, should I go to the movies? And you shake that eight ball and it'll give you answers. Well, that's how I look at the big book. This big book is so loaded with answers for every problem you might have in your life. It's a miracle book. And on page 275 is one of my personal favorites because of my age and my stage of life. I'm now a retired attorney and I'm 77. And I'm looking at the years that I have left. And by the way, uh, and Anne-Marie will show you a picture I have three adult children, seven grandchildren. My third great grandchild is on the way. And I wanna show you a picture of me in the British Virgin Islands with our entire family. We went on a big vacation when I was in recovery and I had lost the hundred pounds and I was keeping it off. And I felt so filled with joy. And you can see me there on the extreme left. And my husband, Walter, is in the blue shirt in the middle. And our two sons are there and our daughter. 
and our grandchildren, and there we are in the British Virgin Islands. And uh, I felt tremendous joy, joy that I was my normal weight and that weight and compulsive eating wasn't an issue. It just simply wasn't an issue. And you know, on this island, there wasn't very much of a variety of food. For those of you who know the British Virgin Islands, it was Joost van Dyck. And it's a very primitive kind of an island. And, but I was fine, even though I'm a vegetarian and even though I have a lot of foods I, I don't eat, I avoid them, I was fine. I, oh, oh Anne-Marie, you can show that one too. That was me at the OA birthday party uh, where I went just, uh, uh, I think that was, let's see here, that was in January, I believe. Yes, the mid-January. There I am out in Los Angeles, OA birthday party. And again, I feel comfortable. I can focus on other people. I feel happy because this problem is just not a problem right now. Thank you, God. But getting back to page 275 in the book, this is a page that I think speaks very much to, um, uh, and Anne-Marie, you can just go back to people's norm. Oh, that's a cute one. That's me with Harlan, and I'm in White Plains, New York, and that was in January as well. There was a, uh, a workshop and Harlan gave the workshop and I flew to White Plains, New York. I was just in the audience enjoying the workshop. And that was, we were having a meal in the restaurant and you can see my big book on the table and Harlan's leaning on his big book and you can see his big book is really filled with notes. You can see it's, it's um, right under his arm there. So Anne-Marie, I think we've gone through all the necessary pictures now. We're back to our, our regular Zoom. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie. Just go back to, to people's regular pictures. We, we've, I think, seen enough of them. There we go. So on page 275, I'm going to read to you the middle paragraph. You know, some of you might be older, but even if you're younger, you might wonder, what is, what is my life going to be like now that I'm in OA and I'm in recovery and I'm practicing the 10th step and the 11th step and I'm sponsoring, what is my life going to stand for? What's the purpose of my life? Well, the big book answers that question along with every other question you could possibly think of. Page 275. AA, or we could say OA, is not a plan for recovery that can be finished and done with. It is a way of life, and the challenge contained in its principles is great enough to keep any human being striving for as long as he or she lives. So that's what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. I'm going to be striving. I'm going to be striving. Uh, because of the way of life and the challenge contained in our program. So we're never done. It says we do not, cannot outgrow this plan. As arrested alcoholics or compulsive overeaters, we must have a program for living that allows for limitless expansion. Now, I have a few minutes left 
And I'm going to use those few minutes to talk about the 10th step because I feel that um, uh, I've got about five minutes left. So I'm going to cover the 10th step. The 10th step is a simple step. And people very often ask me to speak about it. So I'm going to, I picked that for my, my last five minutes because hopefully it will help somebody. All you have to remember to do a 10th step is four words. Four words, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And if you look at page 84, there they are. Now, how are you going to remember those four words? I tried to think of a memory trick to remember them. And Anne-Marie, do you see a little cottage in the pictures I sent you? Do you see that the very last picture I sent you was a cottage? I sent it just as you joined the meeting. Well, I'll keep talking. If you, if you can't find it, that's all right. Well, with, your, with your mother? No, no, no. Don't worry about it. Don't, no, don't, honestly, don't worry about it. And I'm going to just talk about the cottage. It's a cute little cottage and it has a sod roof on it. And why do I talk about a cottage with a sod roof in connection with the 10th step? It's because sod roof for me is my memory trick in remembering selfishness and dishonesty. That's the sod and the Resentment and the fear is the roof. So I picture in my mind a little cottage and a sod roof. Why do I think it's important to remember those four words? Because the 10th step on page 84 tells us to remember, to continue to look for that. Well, how are you going to look for something that you can't even remember what it is? You've got to go around all day long looking for resentment, fear, selfishness, and dishonesty. So it's very important to remember those four words. So that's, you can think of any little trick you want, but you need some way to remember it. And once you continue to look for those things, they're going to pop up all the time. And so then you just call somebody up, you tell them what the resentment, the fear, the selfishness, and the dishonesty is, in very few words, like Harlan says, like a headline, very few words, you ask your higher power to take them away and handle them. You make an amend if you've harmed anybody, and that's it. That whole process takes about two minutes. And the reason why it's important to do a quick 10th step is because we're supposed to do them throughout the day. And if you make it a big deal, you won't have any time left to live your life. If you made each time you were aware of resentment, fear, selfishness, or dishonesty, uh, an hour and a half phone call, you wouldn't be able to live your life. So you've got to be able to handle that in a very efficient way and leave it in the hands of God and then go on with your life. So I think I've exhausted my time. I want to thank you so much. I'm going to read just as an ending, I'm going to read something that I wrote called Do It Anyway. It's something I wrote after I worked with a sponsee. And I was telling the sponsee this. And when I hung up the phone, I thought, you know, that's, I'm going to write it down. Maybe it'll help someone. So I'm going to read this to you as my ending. 
Don't believe in attending OA meetings? Do it anyway. Don't believe in using a sponsor? Do it anyway. Don't believe in reading the big book? Do it anyway. Don't believe in following a food plan? Do it anyway. Don't believe in seeking a higher power? Do it anyway. Don't believe in doing inventories? Do it anyway. Don't believe in making amends? Do it anyway. Don't believe in sponsoring others? Do it anyway. Don't believe you can recover from compulsive eating? Do it anyway and cherish the miracle. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nancy. And um, yeah, thanks for your experience, strength and hope. And if anybody has just joined us, um, we have um, two guest speakers tonight. Um, that has been Nancy J. And we now have Larry Kay. So Larry, I'll hand it over to you. Thanks. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate that, Audrey. And thanks for everyone who's putting, who's doing service and putting this on uh, today. And I gotta say, it's a real honor to speak uh, with Nancy. Nancy's one of my dear friends. I don't get to see her nearly enough. Haven't seen her in a while, face to face. Nancy and I, we, we um, Nancy, if I'm right, we originally met in a face-to-face -face meeting. And I wanna say it might've been Wheaton or yes. somewhere else. Is that right? Yes. We met, yeah. And I knew she had something. She was on to something. She was trying to figure it out. And I remember trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to figure it out. But anyways, um, maybe someday I'll, I'll, I'll figure it all out. But in any case, uh, so I'm Larry Kay. Um, I, I'm a, a recovered compulsive overeater. I, I live in the Chicago area. And I'm, you know, I'm delighted to be here. And uh, I had lunch with, with Harlan yesterday. And uh, that was a real treat. Um, Harlan, if you don't know, he, he, he's got strong opinions. <laughs> he's got strong opinions about this program. And, uh, and, and I do too. I, I, I've been influenced by my experience. But he's, he always says, bottom of year, Harlan, bottom line, bottom line. Yeah, if you ever talk to Harlan, he's going to give you the bottom line, right? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm more of a gray area guy. But I'm going to share with you some of some of my, you know, what it was like and what the heck happened to me and, and, and what it's like now. And one thing I'll tell you, it's not perfect. That, that I can tell you. Uh, it is not perfect. Uh, but I have a way of life that's pretty extraordinary today. So where I want to start is just, I, I don't have any pictures either. Nancy, I love the pictures. That was so, I think that, you know, to have pictures like that really brings brings things to, to light, and I really enjoyed that. Now, it's for me, I don't have any pictures, so I'm gonna to try to paint a picture in your mind of, of some things here. First off, just from a physical standpoint, uh, the happiest that I can recall being, because I just wanna give you some sense, is you know, people see me today over the years, you know, um, I, I'm different than I was uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, certainly, but, but, um, but I was, the, the highest weight that I was, was, was approximately 100 pounds heavier than I am today. It was probably a little bit more than that, but I didn't grow up heavy because I came from, I had two older brothers. I had, I have two older brothers. I have a younger sister and my two older brothers were very athletic. So as a consequence, and there wasn't video games back in the day, 
right? There, there was, it was, and it was safe. It was, we were shooed out of the house with a basketball or a baseball or something, right? And, uh, you know, we could be gone all day uh, during the summer. And so I was very physically active. I didn't know that I was a compulsive reader back then. I know, I know it today, looking back, I was most certainly a binge eater. That was the most exciting thing. You could take the bath. I played baseball all through and through college and all that. You can take that and throw it out the window. If you want to put that up against a Snickers bar or some, you know, Rocky Road ice cream or some pizza, it's going to lose in a, you know, it's going to lose for sure to those things. Those were the most exciting things in my life. Food was more than just love in my family. It was certainly that. I don't know if you can relate if that resonates with you at all, but food was love. Uh, for an example, I had two loving parents that were, um, they were divorced when I was very young. Um, I had a very volatile childhood. It's not because I wasn't loved. I was absolutely loved and I knew it. But, um, but that divorce, we, we moved away from what was familiar when I was in the third grade. And I mentioned that to you. I mean, I meant, I'm, I'm mentioning that to you for a very specific reason. We moved from, you know, what was kind of the cocoon and what was familiar. And all of a sudden, my parents are divorced. I'm living in Reseda, California, which if anybody's on the line from California, I don't know what Reseda's like today, but years and decades ago, it was a nice enough. However, it was like culture shock. And furthermore, my father stayed in Chicago. My father was a pharmacist when he was alive. He's been gone now for about eight or nine years. And, um, and he was gone and it was devastating for me. I don't know how it was for my siblings. I know that I was just a very sensitive child. I cried a lot constantly. Um, I was devastated. I used to steal. This was my, the beginning of my, my stealing phase. I would steal his cologne so that I had something to smell to remind me of him. And that was the first things that I stole. I would much later steal other things like food and, you know, and money and other things. But back then that was the first thing that I stole from him, a bottle of cologne. And that would bring me a little bit of comfort in California. Part of the problem was, is that my mother remarried. I met my stepfather you know, me and my four, uh, three siblings met my stepfather when, when we moved out there. He he inherited four new children, you know, as a stepfather. We didn't know at the time that, uh, that he was uh, physically and emotionally abusive. Um, we later learned, I will I, I you just on the fact that I was kind of targeted. I looked a lot like my father. As a psychologist, I wonder if that, if that had something about it, but I also was very sensitive. And I cried a lot, and that probably wasn't the easiest thing for him and my mother to do, because it, 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 that was not part of their script, their script, that we would live like a happy family. So, and I didn't feel that way. And so as a result of that, um, he was very abusive. Um, I mentioned some of those things to you because none of those things, nor later when I was uh, sexually molested um, as a child, and I mentioned the traumas, not to sensationalize them or not to minimize them for you because you have your traumatic narrative in life and I have mine. I'm not minimizing the importance of those things. I mentioned that to you because none of those reasons are why I'm a compulsive overeater. 
They have nothing to do with that. And I'll prove it to you. There are people that have gone through horrible traumas in their life. Horrible, horrible traumas beyond which you can imagine. As a psychologist, I've met many of them. They have never once, many of them have had in the midst of their traumas, their traumatic life, maybe they were loved, maybe they were abandoned, maybe they were rejected, maybe they were raped, molested, all sorts of horrific, horrific things. But many of them, they've never once had two or three Oreos cookies and decided I'm going to have 50. Never occurred to them. Doesn't minimize their trauma. Doesn't mean that it didn't impact their lives or created wounds and so forth, but it didn't make them into a compulsive reader. No more so than someone on the line right now who's, who knows that they qualify. They have the allergy and they have the obsession and they had a beautiful, beautiful childhood. They were loved by their parents. They really didn't experience much in the way of trauma. They had ever, maybe they were born kind of with a silver spoon to some extent, and, and they've never once uh, uh, been able to control the food. So we can work this on both ends. And yet I mention it because I think one of the, one of the, the challenges for me coming in is I came from with a perceptive lens that told me clearly my problem is food and weight. Certainly seemed that way. And furthermore, all the training that I've ever had, professional and otherwise, would suggest that if I just get down to the bottom of what's troubling me, if I just get down to the core things, then clearly I will be okay with the world. I will be more comfortable in my own skin. And here's the big transition, wait for it. And I won't ever compulsively overeat. And that's a lie. I know that experientially, that's a lie. And I needed to get rid of that myth because I would continue to pursue this program with limited enthusiasm, with an analytical mind that wanted to use the steps in a manner in which I can peel away the layers of the onion to get to the core of who I am. And somehow if I could process those emotions, I won't eat until I'm sick. And that's not true. That's no more true than someone on the line or an individual may know that has gastric bypass surgery. And is a, let's presume they are a compulsive reader. They have the allergy, they have the mental twist, the obsession, have the double whammy. And they have the surgery, they begin to lose weight. Problem solved. They never have a craving again. The obsession never gets them again. They're problem solved. And you and I both know that's not true for I've yet to meet. If you're that person, call me and let me know because I, I want to know that you are that person that is a compulsive overeater and that solved your problem. And that's why it's important for me to recognize that while my childhood traumas and things and the wounds that impacted me were important to process, were important to take a look at and examine, and they do get examined in the step because there were resentments. My biggest resentment was towards my mother. Why? Because she didn't protect me. 
Now you would love my mother. I know it. No, you would. She's in her 80s. She's this warm, kind, uh, sharp woman. Um, she exudes warmth. Uh, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren my family absolutely have an extraordinary relationship with my mom. Now, they don't know the woman that I knew in her 20s, but who, who is the same when they were in their 20s and 30s and early 40s? She was addicted to amphetamines, diet drugs. Remember those? And then for the for the the men and women that could, you know, I was born in the '60s. I hate to age myself here, but I I I was around, you know, when when that was prescribed. And she had my dad was a pharmacist. Are you kidding me? She had a willing uh, dealer there, right? So um, and it was well accepted. And so while we had the cleanest home on the block, because boy did that woman have energy. He also could be extraordinarily go from loving and warm and kind to downright frightening and unpredictable. And you had to tiptoe around my mother like there were eggshells around her. You had to be very, very careful. Well, she's not that person anymore. But that resentment that she didn't protect me was there. And so one of the reasons I didn't, I was having a conversation recently with someone that said, you know, I've heard this really have, Larry. I've tried and I, and I, I just hasn't, the obsession has not left me. I will tell you that. And, you know, and I said, well, I can only speak from my experience. I wasn't willing to let go of that resentment towards my mother. Now, if you would have asked me in the midst of my very first, first fourth step and later fifth, sixth, seventh, and when I, the ninth step, I would have said, I absolutely want that resentment gone. Are you kidding me? But the truth was what I really wanted, I know this today, I did not know this then. I wanted to, yes, there were some harms that I, I detached emotionally. I put her through the paces over decades and so forth. I, there were harms that I wanted to bring to light. But you know what I really wanted? Once I was done making those amends, I wanted a sincere apology from her. Now, who, guess who's the judge on what sincerity is? Me. I'm the judge of what sincerity is. And if I don't get that, sorry, I'm hanging on to that resentment. And it was corroding me like a cancer from the inside. So when you hear about the impediments, I'll call it the impediments, the barriers to recovery, a resentment we won't let go of. We may think we're getting, I thought I was doing what the big book asked me to do and what my sponsor asked me to do. I did a four-step inventory got the resentment, looked at my side of the street, right? I later navigated through five, six, seven. I got to nine. I went before my mother. I made amends, you know, looking at my side. But the truth was my heart was waiting for her to sincerely apologize. I wanted tears. I wanted sincerity. And because I wanted her, my script was, that would be healing to me if she kind of fell to her knees and in, in, in just anguish apologized. And I was never going to get that. So that was a resentment I would not let go of. And when I was talking to this person too, were there secrets I was holding on to? You betcha. I'll, I'll share most of it. But see, I shared a little bit with Maria. And I'm just using this facetiously, right? And a little bit with Nancy that I thought would be palatable to Nancy. And then a little bit over here with Nikki. And, but no, no one person ever got the entire picture of my stories. 
And there were some secrets that I thought I would take to my grave. And so thus, as a result of that, there were secrets I was unwilling to tell. And that kept me blocked off from having a deeper, more profound alignment with a higher power. Because isn't this about heart change? Isn't this about a revolutionary change of heart and mind? Or is this just about doing just enough, get a little bit of relief, so that maybe the food gets a little bit more quiet than it used to be? Is that what this is? That's not sustainable. See, to be an effective recovery, it has to be sustainable in good times and bad. It has to be sustainable. So for me, and I just speak for me, not for you or for anyone in a way, there were secrets I wouldn't tell, resentments I wouldn't let go of. And you know what I got a vicarious thrill from? And I know I'm the only one on the line, so, but I'm willing to be transparent. I like to manipulate. I like to control people and I like to control situations. I do it with sugar, I do it with charm, you know? And that was a vicarious, I would get a vicarious thrill from that. And God either is or God isn't. And if God is this mysterious higher power that I cannot fully understand, and if I continue to try to live where my heart is, you know, is, is basically, you know, I'm always focused on what that selfish, self-centered types of behavior. Now, I know there's no one on the line that's perfect, nor do we need to be saying Big book's quite clear about that. But the reality was is that I wasn't, um, there. I was getting a thrill from those things. And some of the dishonesty when it served me, the white lies, stealing, stealing time from my employer, stealing time from my loved ones, stealing money from them in the sense from my daughter. I'll give you how I did that. Didn't go and you know smash open her piggy bank. But I spent money on other things that I knew really, I had this child. I, I needed to be responsible for this child and for my family. And I was using money for other things. And my way of thinking that was stealing. Now you may see it a different way, but I I, I, I've come, God has awakened me. We talk about a spiritual awakening. It's not, it's not all that complex and, and really, uh, it's not an algebraic equation or calculus. I'm just over time in the midst of implementing these steps, I become, I get insights. I become awakened to different things. That's the awakening for me, oftentimes. So I became awakened to some of those things and I had to, if I, if I was entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, then I would have to begin to start doing the opposite of those things. Being honest, even when, you know, Anne Marie from Pennsylvania isn't looking, you know what I mean? Like, like just be honest when she's not even looking, you know, just be honest when, you know, uh, you know, like Harlan tell, has told me, uh, and he says, gosh, I hate to quote Harlan because, you know, man needs a bigger head. Like, you know what? But anyway, um, and, you know, I love this man. But um, but he said, Larry, if if and someone told him this because he steals everything from other people. We were encouraged to steal in this program. Right. And apply these things. So he said, if everything you did today was splashed as a headline on the in the Chicago Tribune, would you be OK with that? Would you be okay with that? And I began to ask myself that question. 
And many times the answer was, no, I, I really wouldn't be okay with that. You know, I wouldn't be okay with it. Try to live my life a little bit more aligned. No, no, no one of us is perfectly congruent as a human being, right? But I, I, uh, I, I try to live in, in greater alignment. You know, I used the, you ever heard of the teacup metaphor? See, I want to be the teacup. See, I, I want to be that flawless teacup that I see in the rooms. I want to look the way you do. And I want to, you know, I want to be able to communicate the joy and the happiness and the all the different things the way you are. I want to be that flawless teacup. Now, I don't want to put the work in to get that. I just want to hang around you long enough that maybe I can get some of your mojo, right? So I don't want to do the work. So here's the thing. The moral of the teacup story is, is that God, God knows what God is doing for each one of us. You know, I believe that. God knows what doesn't need my help. You know, and 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 so, you know, he's he's the potter. He he's molding the clay, right? And and he knows what he's doing. And I'm God's clay, and I'm to be molded, and he's gonna expose me to just enough of the life pressures and different things in just the right amount so that I can recover in the timing, the perfect timing for him. And it may not be the same, the same timing as someone else. It may take me a lot longer, but it takes what it takes. You know, so if you've been here my first five years, how am I doing on time? Uh, time Maria, are you timing? Or yeah, else Larry, time? you've got 10 minutes left. Oh my God, 10 more minutes of me. That's crazy. All right. So um, where was I? I forgot. That's what happens at 57. You just, you just start forgetting things. But, but anyway, um, but I wanted to be this, back to this, I wanted to be the shiny, beautiful little teacup without the molding and the, you know, the time that you take and, and the effort and the actions that I must take. I wanted to feel better now. Now, once I feel better, then I'll get the food in order. Of course I will, you know? And, 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 and so I think that was kind of the approach. I had nine sponsors in the first five years in Overeaters Anonymous. And, and when I got to this recovered state of being, I can't tell you that it was the ninth sponsor. That was the guy with the goods. That was the guy with the recovery. And he, he could turn a phrase and he could bring the words off the page. No, that guy's back in the food, as far as I know. And I mentioned that to you, not, you know, just to let you know that, you know, it, it's not, I think what happened was, is I, the pain of continuing to eat became greater than the pain of putting it down. The pain of continuing to eat became greater than the pain of putting it down because the pain of putting it down, there's pain in putting food down. Is there not? There's physical pain. How about emotional pain? Perhaps one could say spiritual pain, but there is pain when we put the food down in an unrecovered state. You know, and so that I think that was the threshold for me is looking back. I don't, I don't think you gave me a coin for that day. And I acknowledge like, let's clap for Larry. He finally, the pain of continuing to eat became greater than the pain of, of putting it down. And so now he's going to be on his way and he's going to implement these steps 
in sequence. He's going to follow these instructions, not perfectly, but precisely. He's going to follow them precisely. And he's going to take guidance with humility. No coin for that. And I couldn't tell you the day that happened, but it did happen. And it, and so the food did its job. They did, you know, John Barleycorn. Candy corn is our great persuader. You know, that's going to, it's not, it's not, you know, the person that can turn the phrase. Now, do we need people? You bet. We need people that can bring these words off the pages and bring them to life for us so that we can see how these words and these instructions get integrated together so that they can become a part of who I am. Not something that I study in my spare time, sort of like a hobby. You know what a hobby is for me? Scrabble. I like Scrabble. That's a good hobby. I like to read a little bit. That's a hobby. I like to watch. Maybe you like to watch shows. Things that I do in my spare time. This is not, this is who I am. This, this um, book, sometimes we give too much, you know, we the book, the book. And you keep talking, you know, enough about the book. But, but here's the reality for me. It's, it's the, where do the words lead me to? Where do they lead me? You know, for example, when I read in the doctor's opinion, not even the other, you know, first, the, the first part is this, in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. If you leave out the allergy, it's incomplete. Because, you know, you leave out the allergy. You know, when I, when I take in any of my heroin I'm using that specifically, my heroin food substance into my system. Now it's not gonna kill me as quick as fentanyl or as Oxycontin, you know, or any cotton, any of those things, but it will kill me spiritually and then it'll eventually physically kill me, but it's not gonna kill me as quick, you know, but the reality is, is there's something about maybe genetically, what have you that, I'll give you, and I'll describe this, see if you can relate. When I would just order the pizza, I would get an anticipatory excitement that would physically affect. I bet you if you looked at my pupils, they were dilating. I bet if you looked at my heart rate, all that, there was an excitement. I bet if you could measure, you know, my brain waves, and, and I bet there was a shot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, different, different neurotransmitters that were exciting. It would, it, it, there was an excitability, just ordering the pizza that affected me physically. Now, eating it was pretty good too, but I got excited and that's not normal. So when people talk about just ingesting a physical substance, see, it, in the same way that it gave me an anticipatory excitement and high, so too to the person on the line who gets this. Now, if you're not this person, you won't understand. You don't need to but gets an anticipatory excitement and high over vomiting. Now, who does that? Restricting, exercising, shopping, gambling. These are not adjusted substances, but it affects us physiologically first. And we will continue. And when we take that behavior into our system, we want more of the same. And if we stop doing it, even if we have a spiritual transformation of some type, some type, if we don't continue on this pathway and we get complacent, the obsession will come back. And someday you'll have a broken shoelace. 
Doesn't have to be a major trauma. You'll have a nothing, a big nothing, and you'll be it'll be a sunny, beautiful day, and, and you'll and you'll say, you know, I think this is a good day to uh, restrict, or a good day to get, you know, or, or a good day to pick up the behavior or the substance. And so I have to look at the physical allergy. Physical allergy means that once I stop, start that, I cannot stop. And it's a little bit like Russian roulette, but it's unpredictable. Maybe sometimes I could stop, but it's just not consistent. It's unpredictable. I never know which way it's going to go. And then once I stop for a period of time, I can't stop from starting again due to the obsession. Well, guess what the steps treat? These steps, this practical program of spiritual action, treat the obsession not the allergy. And when the obsession is driven out and we learn a spiritual skill set and, ma and maintain that over time and it becomes who you are, part of you, it gets easier over time and we don't become complacent and we do this and the food remains quiet and that obsession is lifted one day at a time. We're not cured, but it is absolutely eradicated. And as long as we stay on that beam of recovery through the implementation of these steps, it stays quiet for a lifetime. You will, we will all die on this line, newsflash, right? But I am not gonna give one more second to this disease. I am not gonna die of this disease by the grace of my higher power. So I don't know, Maria, are we getting pretty, that's a, it's probably a good place to okay. almost stop there. Three minutes left, but if you want to stop here. Oh, I, I'm going to use it. I'm just going to use it all up. No, I'll just share with you today. Today, life is so much better. I, 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 People can count on me today. Not perfectly, you know, but they can count on me today. I'm predictable in a good way. You know, my daughter doesn't remember the man who came in. She's 27. She doesn't remember the guy that used to steal her Halloween candy. That used to, uh, you know, that used to be, uh, get have fits of rage. Not physical rage, but. It was just as bad. She doesn't know that man. How did that happen? How did that happen if not God? And the implementation and my cooperation. I had to cooperate with the step. Cooperation rather than defiance. And I still have to do this. I'm a very um, you know, strong-willed person. I really want to defy rather than cooperate, that level of surrender. So anyways, I think that's enough out of me. So nice to see everyone. And with that, I pass. Thanks, Maria. Thanks.